and then you could hear the bombs falling. And when the bombs Crazy. leave the airplane, they almost, you know, you know, in movies and cartoons, you hear like, like a, like a whistling sound, but th- that's not what it's like at all. It was almost like the bombs were like flipping through the air, like, and it gets louder and louder and louder. Um, and th- I had heard that sound many times by that point, but I was laying in the hole with these two guys and I was hearing the sound right above my head. And I thought, I'm going to die here. And, you know, I prayed, I said, God, please protect us. And that was all I had time for. And the bomb hit the first bomb and exploded and our ears were ringing. That was Ryan Bouillette sharing his story of how his house was targeted for a bombing in the Nuba mountains in Sudan. Make sure to listen to the rest of the episode to hear how that story ends up. Can changing your corner of the universe change the world? We think so. You've heard the quote, be the change you want to see in the world. But what does that look like? This is where we meet the people that are walking that out. One person, one idea, one decision at a time. Here's Baden and Rex. Welcome back to another episode of My Corner of the Universe. Today, we had just a really incredible interview. I mean, all the interviews are great. Um, Some of them stick out emotionally more than others. This week, we interviewed Ryan Boyette from Two Move Mountains. And you guys heard the teaser when you first started of, you know, his story. You have to listen to this episode all the way through. It is incredible. Yeah, it really is. And I mean, Ryan's story is, you know, one of those uh, edge of your seat type stories. But gosh, talk about just from the very get go when he read a two paragraph article and it's like, wow, why, why is anyone doing anything? Why is it? And it's kind of like, you know, when we started this podcast, it's like, he's pointed to himself. He's like, well, I'm going to have to do something. Yeah. And that really just jumped out at me. I was like, wow. I mean, talk about taking action. Uh, so hats off to Ryan for just getting started and look where he is now 15 years later. Uh, he's got this amazing vision for this organization to really change that whole region of the country. And yeah. uh, man, and you're going to learn in this episode, I mean, me and Rex were both talking before of like how ignorant we are to Sudan and the 30-year war that's been going on there and the Nuba Mountains. And so so you're going to learn a lot about Sudan and the mountainous region. But gosh, if you were ever looking for or curious about a, a nonprofit that you can support that you know that this person is so passionate about it and, and your money is going to go 100%. I mean, I, I don't mean this in any bad way because everyone's great. Yes. But, but, but the, when you hear his story of how he was in this war zone area, he has the option to leave from the organization he's with. And he says, no, you know, I'm like family here and I couldn't be leaving them. I mean, that while should, he's getting in the middle of a war zone, in the middle of a war zone. I yeah. mean, you talk about someone who cares so much about the region that he's willing to stay in a war zone because he felt he would be bailing on his family and the people he's grown with. So, I mean, you want to talk about supporting somebody that cares. Ryan cares. And not only that, uh, he's so enrooted uh, into the community there. Not only does he know what they need, but they trust him. Yeah. And, you know, he did a little breakdown for us and 
our money goes a long way. Basically, he said $20 will pay for one person's education for an entire year. So talk about being able to make a difference in someone's life with $20. Yeah, yeah for sure. I mean, so, you know, when you're blessed, be a blessing, you know, help, yeah. help them out. It's not a lot of money. Um, and in all the organizations, we talk about that. It's not a lot of money, but really, you know, pick the one you like the best and um, just help people out. You know, it's, it's simple. It's a small sacrifice for us. It's a couple, co- couple cups of coffee. It's, you know, two Chipotle burritos or whatever, it, whatever it is that you can sacrifice for a week or a month or whatever and, and help some of these guys out. So um, having said that, you know, make sure that you're subscribing to the podcast so you are able to get more awesome interviews like this one with Ryan. Uh, make sure you're sharing this. That's, we talked about that. So yeah. It's one of the best ways to be able to spread the word. So follow these, these people that we talk to on social media and also share these episodes so these podcasts get out more. So they get more exposure. That's what we're here for. We're here for, to shed the light on people who are doing awesome things. Um, and if you're doing something great, hit us up, email us, hit us up on social media, let us know so we can interview you as well. Yep. Enjoy the episode. Ryan, how's it going? We are here, guys, with Ryan Boyette from To Move Mountains. Um, really excited to have Ryan share his journey with you guys and what he's doing. Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. So Ryan, talk to us a little bit about your story of how you found yourself in Sudan and a little bit also about the, the Nuba region and mountains because I wasn't familiar with it before yeah. reaching out to you and I don't think many listeners are too. So share any information you have about that area and how you found yourself in that part of the world. Sure. Um, so I, uh, I was fresh out of college. I uh, graduated from University of South Florida. I was ready to join the workforce. I was kind of uh, leaning toward uh, doing fed, like a federal agency, like FBI or U.S. Customs or something like that. Um, it kind of ran in my family. Uh, but then my sister happened to call me one day and was like, hey, Ryan, have you seen this? Uh, you got to read this article. This is crazy. And so she sent me this article that was about a 20-year civil war in Sudan. Um, I don't even really remember which magazine it was from, but it was a really short, like two paragraphs long. And my initial thought was I was quite frustrated and angry. I was like, why? And this is my first time as a college graduate hearing about, you know, a 20 year civil war in Sudan. And I barely knew where Sudan was. And so I started doing some research and I was like, why are we not doing anything about this? I was reading stories about um, the stories I was reading was mainly about the persecution of the church and the church was, uh, you know, there was, uh, I remember there was a pastor of a, of a church that was tied up and drugged behind a car because he kept oh, opening gosh. the church up on Sundays. And that was, that was a story that stuck with me. And I thought, okay, this is crazy. Why is no one doing anything about this? Um, and then after a while, I, I eventually just kind of pointed the finger back to myself because I realized that what, you know, no one's doing anything about this. So someone has to start doing something for anything to get done. So I started to, uh, look for ways in which I could help and go to Sudan. Um, I would say that I was called by my faith. Um, faith is a big uh, part of who I am, and uh, my Christian faith kind of leads me uh, in the direction that I felt I needed to go. Um, so I, I would say that I felt called to go there. Um, so then after you know a few weeks of searching how to get there, I, uh, I found an organization called Samaritan's Purse that was uh, working in the area. And I didn't know anything about humanitarian aid. Mm. 
mm-hmm. um, or how that worked. Uh, I had traveled around internationally doing different work, but I wasn't really clued into uh, humanitarian aid and aid agencies. So I called them and I said, uh, hi, I, I hear you work in Sudan and uh, I, uh, I'd like to go. And they're like, well, do you want to work for us? And I said, uh, uh, yeah, sure. If that's an option, that sounds great. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that was, they called me one day um, in April or sorry, that was probably, yeah, that was in April, 2003. And I got a phone call and they said, when can you leave? And I said, uh, I can leave tomorrow if you want me to. And they said, all right, that's good because it was between you and another guy. And the other guy got, um, he couldn't leave so soon and we need someone right now. And I said, well, why do you need someone so quickly? They said, uh, we only have two guys in this location in Sudan in the Nuba mountains. And one of them just got cerebral malaria. So we have to medevac him out. I said, oh, okay, well, I'm your man. I'm your man. I'm not scared of malaria. <laughs> so April uh, 27, 2003, I was in a small um, airplane that landed on a dirt runway. And I was super excited to be working and getting ready. And uh, the door swung open to this uh, airplane. And it was 115 degrees that day. Wow. And I remember the heat hitting my face. And I was just remembering, oh, man, what am I doing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but in the end, I ended up loving the people, fell in love with the place and the people, and uh, it's a it's it's been my home ever since then. So I've been there for 15 years, um, and just moved back to the states last year for for a temporary time. Is there something that sticks out from that in your memories from that contrast of leaving you know Central Florida, U.S. to dirt runway, heat, rural, like? the difference of worlds that you just went from? Yeah, I, you know, I had traveled around quite a bit, um, like to Haiti and doing different sort of like voluntary missions and uh, with churches and kind of helping out where I could. So I, I saw a lot of poverty, but the the difference I think with Sudan and other places that I've ever been is how desolate it was. So this is an area that's been kind of landlocked because of war and no one could get in, no one could get out. And so this little window of opportunity opened up, which allowed me to be there. So when I got there, it's like I was stepping back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, there was absolutely uh, no infrastructure. Um, the place was, you know, speckled with mud huts and grass roofs. Um, at the time when I got there, it was dry season. So there, there's a dry season and a rainy season. So when I got there, everything was very, uh, no, no leaves had, or no trees had leaves on them. Um, everything was very dusty and hot. Um, and I didn't realize that would change dramatically in the rainy season, but it was, uh, yeah, it was just very desolate. When you got there, you said there's one other guy cause the other guy had to be medevaced out is, uh, uh, I mean, English speaking people around for you to be able to communicate with, what did that look like? So when I mentioned like one of the guys, what I mean was there was uh, one other employee uh, of Samaritan's Purse. Um, His name was Matt. And so he met me at the airstrip. He picked me up at the airstrip and uh, we started driving through uh, the village uh, to get to where we were, we were living in like a little compound, which is just mud huts and grass roofs as well. Um, But then immediately I started seeing people and people were outside clearing land for the next rainy season to prepare for farming. Um, it's a big farming community in the Nuba mountains. Um, there were hills around. And so people were kind of living on the sides and tops of the hills at that time, because the war had just kind of stopped for a little bit. 
So uh, there was safety in the mountains. And so that's where I saw the houses, but people were down in the valleys farming. Um, so I immediately got to meet people. And of course, nobody knew English. Um, they speak their local languages. New was made up of 56 uh, tribes and they all speak different languages, um, but they, they share Arabic as a language. Okay. Um, the area, the Nuba Mountains is probably 70% Muslim and 30% Christian, um, but they live together um, really in harmony. There's really no uh, conflicts as far as religious conflicts go because they've all been oppressed and attacked equally. Um, so that kind of almost unified them. Uh, they're hardworking people. They live on, a, they're, they're rugged and hardworking people because they've lived in this rugged land for years and they're resilient and have survived. Wow. So you talk about the, the war and obviously you just mentioned it. It's not necessarily religious factions that were fighting against each other. What's going on with this long lasting war? Is it just government fighting or what's happening with that war? So you have the government of Sudan uh, for years uh, was really a dictatorship and they were trying to maintain their power. So what they would do is they would try to divide people against one another, whether it was Muslim and Christians, um, and it was going on in South Sudan as well. Um, and, the, and so what happened as a result is, you know, you had the North, which was predominantly Arab tribes and the South, which was predominantly African tribes. Um, and then you had also the separation of Christian and Muslim and Nuba was kind of right in the middle of all of that. Um, so you had all kinds of issues coming in that the government would use any of those issues to label and divide people to maintain their power. Um, you had in the South, an opposition group rose up in the 80s. And that's really when war started. Um, the, the black African tribes in the South basically said, uh, we're not going to put up with this anymore. We're second-class citizens in our own nation. Um, we're forced to take uh, uh, Muslim names in our schools. We're not allowed to speak our local languages. Uh, we're not allowed to share in, in government decisions. So uh, they actually rose up and started fighting. And uh, there was a leader named Dr. John Garang, and he just was a very charismatic leader, and just a lot of people unified around, around him, uh, including the Nuba, uh, the Nuba tribes where, where I live. And so they fought for years and years. When I arrived there at that point, it was 20 years, uh, about 25 years, sorry. Um, and so they had just been fighting um, the government. And now just to give you an idea, it was, you know, a gov the government forces would come in or militias and they would burn down entire villages. They would take, take people, execute people. They would take people as slaves um, as, you know, there's, there's books written by a few Sudanese and even people from Nuba that talks about their families being taken as slaves in front of them and themselves. Wow. Um, and this is, you know, in, in the 1990s. Um, so this is, you know, there was bombing from the air, constant bombing. Um, and so when I arrived, it was just at the beginning of a peace deal um, that would ultimately divide the South to become its own country. But the Nuba mountains got stuck in the North. Yeah. Mm. So it's com it's a bit it's complicated. I mean, it gets complicated over, you know, thirty or twenty years of conflict, twenty five years of conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Samaritan's Purse is that um, a Christian based foundation or is it non denominational or foundation? Yeah, it's it's a Christian faith based organization that's um, based in North Carolina, um, and they do work kind of all over the world. 
Okay. Well, yeah, I thought I heard of them, but I wasn't hundred percent sure. Um, so what, what, what was the reception like from the locals when you got yeah. there? Oh, people, that, that was the most amazing thing. I think that's what made me like fall in love with it. Uh, the Nuba people are so hospitable. Like, you know, they, especially at that time when I arrived, people were, were tired. They had little food, you know, it's hard to imagine not being able to really buy anything. Um, like they didn't have beds to buy or mattresses. They just made, you know, woven beds out of local materials. But like, if you went to someone's house, um, or you traveled somewhere to go help a certain community, anyone in that community would allow you to Mm -hmm. stay with them. Like they would, they would want you to stay with them and they would give Mm -hmm. you their bed and they would want to sleep on the ground. And it was just like this hospitable, um, way of just showing, um, their happiness to just have someone there. That's um, awesome. So, you know, I, I try to do, I try to be as hospitable as them uh, because I just learned how, how meaningful it is to people and how, how helpful it is. Um, but yeah, I just fell in love with them. Um, and so I would say more of my friends now because I've been there so long are from Nuba than really in America. Yeah. Awesome. Not just, not just friends, but wife as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I fell in love with them so much that yeah. I fell in a particular <laughs> new woman. Her name is Jazira. Um, so we met in, uh, we actually met in 2007. Um, my parents came out and it was still during peacetime. And so when they came out, um, my mother wanted a translator. And so I was looking in the village for someone who could translate for her and kind of move around with her a little bit. And so a friend of mine said, oh, you should, do you know Jazeera? And I said, no. And so when I did meet her, I, I met her and she told me, yeah, I heard you need a translator for your mother. And I kind of figured I needed a translator for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we were actually, uh, our, our, it was a long process because uh, in Nuba, you, you know, they have dowry. I had to talk to the family and negotiate with the family. Um, uh, of course, there was uh, people who were against the the idea of us getting married. No um, foreigner had ever married a woman from Nuba mm-hmm. in Nuba, um, so it was uh, it was a pretty big deal. But in the end, uh, we had a great wedding. We were married in 2011, February 2011, awesome. and there was six thousand people at our wedding. Oh, that's wow. that's so cool. I think that means so much. Shows so much to your heart and love for the yeah. for the people in the area that it wasn't like, hey, come back home, you know, and we can have a big wedding at this venue back in Florida. You're like, no, nah, we're going to get married right here. Yeah, that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, that? it was it was it was unbelievable. What catering has got to be tough for that, man. That's a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, a lot of cows had to give their life that yeah. day for, uh, to feed everyone. Yeah, yeah, six thousand people. Holy moly! Yeah. Uh, what's the language that the Nuba speak? So they have uh, their fifty-six uh, languages that are specific to each tribe. Oh um, wow! But they also uh, the common language is Arabic but they shifted over to English. They're trying to shift over to English. So like, for instance, my wife, um, you know, she's 33 now and she originally went to school um, in, in Arabic for her first five years of school. And then they felt that Arabic was the language that has been used to oppress them. So they actually made the decision as a people to shift to English. They felt it was more neutral. Um, so then she had to change and, and, and again, go back to school from first grade through, through English. Um, so you see the younger generation speaking more English, but still everyone knows Arabic as well. So I speak Arabic, uh, with them. And I also speak a little bit of my wife's language. Wow. And so unfortunately 
um, eventually the peacetime ended, you guys had a really close call, correct? Um, I read on the website. What was that like? Yeah, we, um, so we were seeing signs of conflict starting again. Um, I won't get into all the politics of it, but the thing that we saw some, some indicators that were showing that war was going to start. And, you know, we told Samaritan's Purse all of this and they were watching it closely as well. Well, on June 6th, um, sure enough, we started hearing fighting down in, in the village from, so our house is on the top of a plateau. And so there's two villages on either side of that plateau. So the Northern side of the plateau, uh, we could hear loud gunfire and people started moving up to the mountain where we live. And so of course we we're hearing what was taking place and it was quite scary, but Samaritan's purse, you know, asked me to evacuate with my family. And at that time, uh, you know, after a lot of thought and prayer, uh, we decided to stay. I felt personally, I felt as someone who is living by faith and as a Christian to just step away from that after saying I have all this faith and, and talking mm-hmm. to people about that. And then all of a sudden just leaving, I felt it was hypocritical. And so also these were my friends and family. And right. so I didn't feel right just walking out on them and neither, neither did my wife. Yeah. And so we decided to stay and uh, I called Samaritan's Purse on a sat phone and, and told them, I'm sorry, I resigned. And they understood. And, uh, but I also understood where they were at and they had, they had to go. Uh, so we were left alone. We had absolutely nothing. Uh, no vehicle, no resources. We just, I had built a home. So we were in our house. Um, but someone had come in and brought in little point and shoot cameras, just little simple digital cameras, about eight of them. And so I went to the local leaders and I said, I want to start a small media team. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I remembered that two paragraph article that I read before and how little it was and how little information was getting out. Um, so we started a media team with some local volunteers and we just started walking from bombing to bombing and taking pictures and burn village to burn village, taking pictures and uh, get trying to get them out, uh, as quick as possible to international media. And this is kind of pre social media explosion too, right? You weren't able just to tweet this stuff out. This is before that. I mean, yeah, like, no, actually I think social media was kind of coming up quite quickly at that point the problem was we didn't have access to the internet yeah Uh, yeah. um and also we were i was a bit worried about you know shooting stuff out in social media from the war zone that it would give away location and we'd become a target yeah um which later actually became the case but what happened was i had made uh, contacts over the years in international media and one in particular, uh, Nick Kristoff from the New York Times, the opinion writer from the New York Times, he um, was very interested in what was taking place in Nuba. And I had shown him around in another place in Sudan prior to that. So I called him and I said, do you want to come here? And he said, can you get me here? And I said, yes, we'll have to cross um, the border of South Sudan to get in. And it'll be, you know, you have to be careful, but I can get you in. And so he came. And so I showed him around. And so when his story hit, New York Times, it kind of blew up a little bit. And he also did a, some, a story about us, um, about Nuba reports and our work there. And so then we started bringing other journalists and that, that, you know, the story was out there. And so through that, our journalists were getting trained. So we would bring people and show them around for free, mm-hmm. but in turn, they would have to take one of our reporters with them to show them around 
but at the same time train them on how to take good photos and videos and and do journalistic interviews um, and getting all sides of the story. Um, So that's how we started training up our guys. And what year is this? So that was in 2011 is when the war started. Um, Okay, gotcha. It was like a few months after my wife and I got married. Um, And so the war started and then immediately bombing and stuff took place. So this, you know, from the time we started bringing media in by, I mean, mid 2012, I was going out of Sudan and coming in like almost every three days, bringing in a new, a new uh, member of the media. Wow. Do you feel like, I mean, I don't know if you want to answer this question on your website, you guys were a target of a bombing attack. Was it related to that? Or do you think it was just a random shot? No, it was definitely related. So we, because of the attention we got, um, it was really good because we were able to get out there. I was invited to the White House. I got to speak um, to, to members of the White House during the Obama administration about what was taking place. Um, we ended up bringing Ann Curry. Um, we brought in Greta Van Susteren, some other people. And then we even brought in George Clooney for a little bit because uh, George Clooney is a big uh, Sudan advocate. Okay. And so he came in. Um, and so all of this attention, we also bring, we brought in Al Jazeera English and mm. BBC and CNN and all these people. And so all this attention was making the Sudan government angry. It was the first time ever in a 30-year conflict, just that five-year window of peace was the only time that there was no conflict. But it was the first time ever that photos and videos were coming out of what they were doing. And we, were, we got better cameras as well. So it was higher quality photos and videos and media getting in and getting this information out, which they didn't want. It was putting a lot of stress on them uh, because they had sanctions on them. They, had, they were on the, the terrorist watch list, uh, Sudan as a country. Um, so all of this stuff was building up and making them quite angry. So one day I was at my house with two of our reporters. Uh, we were going over some footage that they had taken. And my wife was at our neighbor's house, um, just a few hundred meters away. And sure enough, it was, it was a cloudy day. We're on top of a plateau and the, and the uh, clouds were low. And we could hear an Antonov, which is, it's a Russian cargo plane. That's what they would drop bombs out of. And we could hear it, but we couldn't see it because he was above the clouds. And I told my guys, I said, you know, he's coming from a strange direction this time. And by that time, I had been by around many bombings and many airplanes. If, if you heard a plane move, it was coming to bomb. So I had been around many of them by that time. And so the plane circled once. And I said, guys, I think this plane's going to bomb. And they said, no, there's no way they know where you live. And I said, I don't know. This is strange. And I said, let's go to our hole. And I dug a small hole for like two people can lay in it. Well, we were three men and we're laying in this hole, barely fitting. And sure enough, the the plane circled back and lined up on my house and came under the clouds and it was very low. And then you could hear the bombs falling. And when the bombs leave the airplane, they almost, you know, you know, in movies and cartoons, you hear like, like a, like a whistling sound, but that's not what it's like at all. It was almost like the bombs were like flipping through the air, like, and it gets louder and louder and louder. Um, And I'd heard that sound many times by that point, but, I was laying in the hole with these two guys and I was hearing the sound right above my head. And I thought, I'm going to die here. And, you know, I prayed, I said, God, please protect us. And that was all I had time for. And the bomb hit the first bomb and exploded and our ears were ringing and shrapnel flew over our head. Mm-hmm. A couple of pieces of shrapnel went through our roof of our house. Um, but it landed about 30 meters or, you know, about 30 yards from us. 
And then the second bomb landed on the other side of my house, about 50 meters from the house. And the shrapnel, it hit the side of a hill. So the shrapnel actually pointed away from our house, um, but still kind of rained down on top of us a little bit. Um, and then the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth bomb were in a line after that. Um, so my wife was at the neighbor's house and they didn't have a hole. They were laying behind a big rock and she was seven months pregnant with our son at the time. Oh my gosh. And so the bomb hit near her and a piece of shrapnel nailed the uh, rock she was laying behind and, and kind of went up in the air. Um, and that rock really saved her. And so we, uh, as a result, we named our son, uh, Evan, which is short for Ebenezer, which means rock of help. Um, wow. so that's kind of, uh, it's really meaningful to us. I yeah. bet. We felt we were protected. Um, she ran to me. I ran to her. We got in a, I, I had a truck at the time. We drove to a cave and got in the cave to make sure the, the bomb wasn't coming back. Um, I mean, the airplane wasn't coming back. And so we, we were safe at that moment. But That's wow. a crazy story. Holy Unbelievable. Wow. Yeah. Wow. God was definitely protecting you guys yeah. during that yeah. point. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and this is in 2011 still or? Sorry, that was in May 2012. So that okay. was after all. We really started getting a lot of attention and bringing a lot of media in. Gotcha. Um, so, so it then was, it was weird to think that someone got in their plane with the mission to bomb my house there's yeah, nothing right. else up there that would be a target um we were creating a lot of problems for them um telling the truth of what was happening and so that was the result of that and who's the ones doing the bombings uh sorry so that it's the sudan government okay gotcha so it's the it's the government of sudan using old cargo planes to drop bombs on people living in houses made of grass and mud <laughs> wow so then, and when did, when did, when did you start to move mountains and, um, how was that transition? So, um, I had been, so I worked with Samaritan's Purse eight or seven years, and then I did Newbury Ports reporting from the conflict zone, um, uh, for about, uh, seven years or sorry, eight years. And then my wife and I saw that there was kind of a lull in the fighting. Um, so there was about at that point, almost a year that there hadn't really been much fighting that the two forces were on the front lines, but there was kind of ceasefire agreement between the rebels and the, the opposition and the government. And we realized that maybe this is a good time for us to come out. We thought that, you know, it was always in our minds that the media thing was temporary because we saw through all my years in Sudan my wife's struggle for education, we always saw education as the key to getting people out of this problem. Mm-hmm. We felt that, and this came from the Nuba people, not myself, like they see education as the way out of their oppression. Um, they feel that it is the only way to resolve the conflict, that they become educated and they take part in the decisions of their country. Um, they can contribute um, at that kind of level. Um, it can teach them to solve the problems for themselves instead of look for aid. Um, and that's their desire. Uh, you go into any village. I've been to villages where people are very hungry and you say, what's your number one need? And they say, we need education for our kids. Uh, Cause they see that's the only way for the future. Yeah. And so my wife and I decided um, that we needed to make, to move mountains an organization that is focused on providing quality education to uh, not only the children in Nuba, but first the children in Nuba and 
to spread that into other areas of conflict, uh, God willing, if, if we're able to do that in the future. And so what's the, what was the current education? Is it, is it pretty much non-existent education in Nuba? So people are driven for education. They'll walk, the kids will walk hours to go to a school made of like sticks mm-hmm. um, and teachers, they, they're volunteering. So you have people um, that are teaching, but they've never been trained as teachers. Some of them haven't even finished elementary school, but they're trying. So you have this yeah. great desire, but you don't have a lot of um, uh, resources yeah. and, and training to be able to do it in a right way. So that's kind of what we are going to provide for them. So the people in Nuba, they, you know, just to give you a picture of what a school looks like. So kids will walk really far to school. Most of the kids don't have shoes on. Some of the kids have kind of tattered clothes. And when they get to school, and this, this is my wife too, by the way, she uh, is the same, same story. Uh, many of the schools don't have notebooks, pens, or papers. So they write on the ground with their fingers, the numbers, the letters, and that's how they learn to write. Um, so sometimes they won't see paper until they're in the higher grades and they can go somewhere to go maybe buy a notebook and come back. Um, so it's, it's very tough there. Um, but now we feel that things are shifting in the country. That's going to allow this, uh, education system to take place. And so as far as what you guys are provide is going to, is like, um, actually physical location as well too, or are you guys going to kind of use a similar infrastructure, but obviously that the supplies teachers, you know, provide that educational need for the people there. So we, um, that's a good question. So I've been thinking about this for years and I've seen a lot of aid come into areas through big organizations and stuff. And, and they do a lot of things that actually quite frankly don't work. Um, so we're very long-term thinking and through the desires of the people in Nuba. So the first thing we're going to do is help the people of Nuba create a new curriculum. So a curriculum that's based on what their needs and desires are for an education system. And they've expressed things like critical thinking skills, um, problem solving skills, being able to look at their community and use their education to meet the needs. Also to know their history. Um, They have an unbelievable history even through the Egyptian times. So they want to combine all this into an, an education system and a curriculum that we are going to help them build. Um, so my wife and I, uh, one of the reasons we're here in the U.S. is to, to establish and found to move mountains, but also to go to school. So we are both going to Vanderbilt University, um, which I wasn't expecting to go back to school, especially not at a, a school as rigorous as Vanderbilt. Yeah, right, um, gosh. But it's, it's going really well. We met some amazing professors there who were really excited about this program. We said, listen, you guys get to use some of the best research and innovative methods and help guide us in the people of Nuba to make something amazing. That, that's such a unique experience right. mm-hmm. because most education systems are already established and to move a big machine like that is very difficult where now we can take something very innovative and establish that with the people of Nuba there um, and utilize it. That's and so, so awesome. we're going to, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really pumped about it. And so are the professors that are working with us. Yeah. And um, so well, we're talking, we're right now, we're ground zero. This program is just launching, correct? Yeah. So we've, uh, yeah, it's, we've only, to move mountains has been operating for a year and a half. Okay. So we have just finished a lot of research that's going to inform that curriculum building. In the summer, we hope to bring uh, several professors over from Vanderbilt to now 
give us advice and guide us on the next steps for the curriculum building process. Okay, awesome. Have you guys done Um, um, GoFundMes or Indiegogo campaigns for fundraising or what's been the main source for fundraising so far? We have done some of that uh, at the beginning and it it was a good kind of, it was a kind of a Kickstarter that got us going. Um, we've reached out over the years of being in Nuba and, and being in touch with people who have an interest to help, uh, especially in education. I've reached out to them. So we have a few, um, I would say donors that have decided to cover some of our administrative costs mm-hmm. so that when we ask, um, individual donors that a hundred percent of their donation goes directly to projects. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't mention before. So while we have that curriculum, at the same time, kind of running parallel to that, we took 26, and this was before To Move Mountain started. I did this years ago. We took 26 of Nuba's brightest students all around Nuba, the best boy and girl from each area. And we sent them out to Uganda at a very good high school. And so the plan was that they would finish high school and they're going to come back to be the teachers in the school that we create. That's awesome. So when they have just finished high school and now we're going to start teacher training with them. So as we're building the curriculum, they're going to help us build that. And then they're also going to be trained as teachers. And then we'll open the pilot school that we will now um, initiate all of these things together. And the plan is to do that in three years from now. That's awesome. How how many people roughly are in this area, and is it are they spread apart from each other? Um, that's a good question. Um, yes, so there is the state in which Nuba Mountains is in is called South Kordofan. So the census showed that there's a million, about a million people, just shy of a million people in South Kordofan. Um, now a lot of those people have been displaced because of the war. Approximately uh, three hundred thousand people have been displaced. Um, either running to other countries or other parts of Sudan, um, but the the rest remain in Nuba. And if there's peace, a lot of them will return. And so where is the state of peace right now over there? Um, yeah, so I, I did mention there's a great opportunity right now. And so what happened in April, just last year, is the dictator Omar Bashir was overthrown. Um, so the people of all Sudan kind of rose up and there was this massive protest for months. Um, and we don't hear about it on the news here. Uh, but there was this massive protest. And they ended up ousting the, the president, who's wanted for war crimes at the International Criminal Court. And so he was gone. And so as a result, there's this uh, civilian leader who has kind of been appointed by a group of, that represents the people that's now the new prime minister. And so he is really acting on behalf of the people and really trying to give them some social and political freedoms in the country. So it's really opening this new opportunity to allow for our work to even possibly spread throughout the country in some ways. Wow, that's great. And he seems to have, I mean, it's kind of a weird question, but just from overthrows we were more familiar with in Latin America, he has the military behind him or he's not at conflict with the military? Yeah, no, that's actually, yeah. So that's, you know, there are some issues with that. There is some military leaders who are, there's a bit of a power struggle right now, Mm -hmm. but also the military leaders seem to not want to have all this attention on them right now. Um, So the, the people are supporting the, the new prime minister who is in power. He's sitting, you know, in the, the presidential house in, in Khartoum and he is moving all around the country, visiting these areas who, that have been uh, kind of ravished by the war. And 
just recently in a historic visit, he actually visited Nuba um, and he met the rebel commander um, of the army and the people, the civilians of the area in Nuba. And there were 50,000 people waiting when his, when his airplane landed, there's actually a video of it on my Twitter account. Um, It was this unbelievable day and brought so much hope to people. And so the timing for our work is really, we couldn't ask for better timing. How, so when you said that there's a million, roughly a million people in Nuba area, how big are the villages there? Um, oh, yeah. Going back to one of your questions about are they spread out? So the villages are interesting because it's not what you would think of as a village, like a bunch of huts kind of together uh, because of the bombing. So because of bombing and attacking, people made their houses farther away. And that allowed them some safety and security. So if a bomb hit, it might hit one of the houses or two. It wouldn't destroy or burn down all the houses. Another reason they do that is they farm around their houses and then they have far farms as well. So the, you know, you'll find a village, what we would call a village. And it would, uh, you know, the houses might be, uh, uh, you know, maybe about 300 to 400 yards away from each other sometimes. Um, so they're very spread out. Uh, but then you will have some areas where you'll drive for, you know, maybe 30 minutes and you won't really see a house. And then the next group of houses will will emerge. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how spread out it is. Okay. Gotcha. Definitely, definitely spread out. Um, just just out of curiosity, since you kind of mentioned it, if you want to answer it, you can. You mentioned you've seen a lot of humanitarian aid come into places that doesn't work. What are some of those things that don't work you, that you've noticed? I think it's more of the process that doesn't work. I think that um, when organizations come in and really don't try to understand at the grassroots level, what people need, what they want um, and what is happening with whatever program they're initiating, that's when they fit. That's when it fails. Uh, If you bring some piece of technology in or something in that um, proves to not have uh, any use to the people, then it's not going to move forward no matter how much you want it to. And so that's, that's one of the reasons I think another big reason is because of lack of education. Mm -hmm. So if there is, you know, very little primary or elementary school education, it's hard to get people to come out of their, their comfort zone of maybe a systematic way that they've been doing things for hundreds of years to possibly look at a new way of doing things. Um, And the other thing is you have massive UN organizations that a lot of times they are there, they exist for themselves. And that to me is problematic. Um, You will have an initiative that they feel they have to come and do, you know, like a massive feeding program, which in a farming community has really bad effects as well. While it's very important to feed the people, there's an appropriate way to do it because if you do it in the wrong way, you will stop people from also farming. Um, and so that's why I like the Nuba because they identify that before it happens and they have great pride in like their hard work. Um, so those are some, some examples of just, you know, when I've seen projects not work. Yeah. That's the food there. Yeah. Is the food good in Nuba? So we eat uh, sorghum. Do you guys know what sorghum is? Uh Yeah. You know what it is? Yeah. So sorghum, a lot of time they they make molasses out of it in the U S like in the Mm -hmm. South. Um, but that's usually out of the stock. So we eat the grain of, of sorghum, which is like a, almost like a millet. Right. And it's a pretty hard, um, you know, grain. And so they have grinding mills there 
um, before women would grind them between two stones like overnight mm -hmm. and make flour. Um, and then they boil that and make almost like this doughy paste. And then you dunk that into like an okra, like stew or like, um, you know, if most families don't get meat, but if you do get some meat, it'd be chicken or goat. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's very organic. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. The other question I had was you've been there almost 20 years, right? 15 years or so. Yeah. 15 years. Yeah. And have you, I mean, granted it's been a war zone. I mean, have you seen uh, improvement in technology since you've been over there? Um, so during the five-year window of peace, I, I was actually just talking about this to someone today. Um, during the five-year window of peace, there was a, a time in which cell phones came in. So this, this company came in and brought cell phones in. And it, it was crazy <laughs> to watch the difference in the amount of growth in like commerce and things like that uh, and markets just grew tremendously as a result of that. The ability to communicate instead of driving, or I mean, walking for hours and hours to like get a message or find out the price of something. And now suddenly people could, you know, at that time there was freedom of, of movement. So people could call Khartoum and say, oh yeah, I need these supplies. Can you bring them down to Nuba? And uh, that just made right. things progress tremendously. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was, that was actually very, very interesting to watch. I bet. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, the name of the organization to move mountains. I love it also because, you know, there's a lot of worship songs. God can move mountains yeah. and also the Nuba mountains. Really cool. Mm -hmm. Really cool tie in with both those. Yeah. That's exactly what, uh, it, wh where we were getting at, you know, like, uh, um, you know, faith to move mountains and, you know, the verses that refer to that is, uh, you know, even if you do have faith to move a mountain, but you have, but you don't have love, it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. So we want, the faith that we work with to also have meaning through the love that we work with. Um, so that's really what we hope to embody in our work is, is through faith and, and through love for the that's people. Great. Nice. So what's the best way people can help out? Um, so they can, I mean, people can go to our website and check out more about what we do in our story um, to move mountains.org. And if they're willing and able to donate, that, that's a tremendous help. Uh, to build this curriculum is not easy. Uh, it takes a lot of resources to send those, the students to school that we are supporting. Um, that, you know, 100% of their donations go to that. So that's a huge help. Um, other ways are, you know, follow us on social media. Send us a message if, if you know, you're an education expert and you have an interest of, um, you know, contributing to the, the building yeah, of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. that, that's a huge thing. Um, I would say, you know, you can go on our website. Find, there's an email there. If you want to follow us on social media uh, to move MTNS, um, you can send us a message there uh, just to reach out to us and then we'll get back to you. But we need education experts. We really do. When the time is right, will you guys be open to someone doing something similar to what you did and said, hey, I want to go to Nuba and I want to help out in whatever way I can? Oh yeah, we're we're planning as soon as uh, we finish school here, um, which my wife will finish in about three years. Uh, we will move back full time to Sudan, and at that time, we hope to have people with us and working with us alongside us um, with our teachers in the schools. Um, that would, I mean, even building schools. So there's there's a lot of room for that. Awesome. Yeah. So everyone sharing. It, it's hard to you can't underestimate 
the impact of today's day and age of sharing content on social media, yeah. especially, you know, that's the way that we reached out to Ryan and to move mountains was through Instagram yeah. and um, things that they're posting. It's, it's impactful. It's the type of things that when you share, it'll have an effect on the next person who sees it. So make sure you're following them, you're sharing their content um, and contribute financially. Like you said, this is nothing's free in this world and they're doing, I mean, you listen to the story, they're doing incredible things in a place that drastically, drastically needs help and it's education. It comes down to education. That's the root of it all. Yeah. Thank you guys. I appreciate that. Um, It's good to get the word out and, you know, we want people to know about what's happening in that area of the world. Yeah. And like you said, you have a kind of a unique opportunity to do education in a different way. Yeah. That's yeah. tailored for the Nuba. Yeah. Yep, that's right. We have a lot of opportunities with some really qualified people that are guiding us in, in, a, in a great time period in which there could be peace. And this is a great time to rebuild a nation uh, after years and years of war. Yeah. You know, Rex, it reminds me um, when we did the interview with uh, the, the folks from Kenya, and it was a similar thing where it was, it all came down to education. These These people will walk forever or go for distance for education, you know, and sometimes in the U S because we have public education and we argue about is your school, a distinguished school or this or charter school. And we forget like Mm -hmm. how blessed that we are. And one of the greatest things is that when you're a blessed, when you're blessed in this world, be a blessing to somebody else. Yeah. And not take for granted that what we have in this world of free education and great education, that there's people who need the basic education and it's not that hard to help them out. And how much is the education, you know, for an individual over there, roughly, if you had to say. So uh, I'll tell you two things, Rex, we got, so the students that we sent to Uganda, just to give you a comparison. So we sent them to a very good high school and it costs about um, $1,200 a year to send one of them. Um, But we want them to be, they're going to be the foundation. Leaders, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, four to send one student to school in Nuba right now. Um, let me just do the math real quick of the conversion rate. It's about $20 a year. Wow. Yeah. It's about $20 a year to send. So donations can go a long way. Needless. To oh say. yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes, it could. Especially please considering please continue following us and maybe we can do another uh, podcast and, uh, you know, yeah. We definitely a couple, want to like maybe after some things have progressed more and we can give you guys an update as well. Yeah, definitely. Let's do that. This has been one of my favorite ones so far. It's really awesome having you on here. Um, we're going to spread the word as much as we can and help out any way we can. Um, but Ryan, really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast and share with us your story and the outlook for the future of what you're doing. Definitely. Thank you guys. Thank you guys. I appreciate it. And God bless you. Yeah, yeah. bless you too. Thank you. If you liked today's episode, you can find more information at mycorneruniverse.com. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you.